right, so, well, <clears throat> welcome. Good morning, fellas. Hopefully you're awake, right? Got some coffee in you. Um, you should have received a uh, name tag, a notebook, right? And uh, hopefully some coffee downstairs when you came in. And um, a chart as well, which I'm going to ask you guys to fill out each week as we make our way through uh, the chapters. Just by way of review, you remember the book of Genesis is written by a man named Moses who led the people out of captivity in Egypt to the promised land. Okay, so um, it is important to keep in mind the uh, historical background of who Moses is, when he wrote, and to whom he wrote. He was writing during a time when <clears throat> the people of Israel, the Hebrew people, were fleeing from Egypt. And he was writing in a, in a culture that was polytheistic, meaning they believed that there was a God of the moon, a God of the stars, a God of the sun. There are multiple gods. He's writing to tell them there is one God, and you are created by that one God and designed to have a relationship with him. You are accountable to him, and he has a plan for you as a nation. Um, I put here that there's a universal focus in the beginning of chapters 1 through 11. It reveals the origin and purpose of the universe, life, and humanity, and how the Hebrew people are tied to God's purposes. But then it becomes very national in focus, and it immediately looks at the person of Abraham. God's going to call Abraham, we're going to see later on, he's going to say, hey, Abraham, through you, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. And so the outline of Genesis is really simple. It's four events in chapters 1 through 11, followed by four people. There's creation, fall, flood, Tower of Babel. Those are the four major events in chapters 1 through 11. And then you have four people who we refer to as the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. So we'll get to all that, but that's just a big picture a view of Genesis. I'd encourage you to memorize that so that um, you can always kind of have a road map in your mind of what Genesis is all about. Now, you receive that chart, and my challenge to you is, is for each chapter, just to title each chapter, you discover or you de- uh, determine what do you think the key verses are? What are the contents of that chapter? What's included in that chapter? And then what questions do you have? This is what I call kind of the interpretive challenges. You're going to read Genesis 1 and 2, and unmistakably, you're going to have a lot of questions. So just make a note of the verse, okay? And then um, there's no way I can up here in the 20 minutes that I have answer all the questions from Genesis 1 and 2. But we directed you some, to some websites um, and to some messages and other resources last week. I'd encourage you to, to take a look at those during your time on your own during the week. And just answer one of the interpretive challenges for each chapter. So we covered Genesis 1 and 2 this last week. So you may have 25 questions that you're asking. Just make note of those. But then try to answer one or two of those questions. And then chances are, when you get In your group, and you spend time together, there are going to be other guys who have asked the same questions, and hopefully you can sharpen and help one another. Make sense? All right, so chapter one, what are just some basic things that we see? Well, 
two things. You see symmetry and you see a pattern within each day, right? The symmetry is um, described in the fact that God forms the earth in the first three days and then he fills the earth in the latter three days. But chapter one starts with a summary statement. One, one, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's a summary statement. And then beginning in chapter two, he's gonna describe the condition of the earth when God created it. We learn that it was formless and void. Those are two key words right there because it's gonna then help set up the structure for the rest of the chapter. Verse two says, the earth was formless and void. So what does God do? He forms the earth days one through three, and then he fills it, days four through six. Did you catch that? And then finally, the Lord rests. So there's symmetry here. He forms it, he fills it. It's the idea that God, what he created was perfect. It was complete. It was just as he intended. So here's a little chart of what I just said. He separates the light from darkness in day one. Separates the sea from the sky, day two. Day three separates water from the dry ground. But then he fills it. Creates the sun, the moon, the stars. Creates the fish and the birds. And then the animals and human race. So there's a pattern here. There's symmetry. Within each day, you'll see something along the lines of an announcement. And God said, you'll see a commandment, let there be, through God's spoken word, everything comes into existence. You see separation, God separates the water from the dry ground, for instance. You see a report, okay, what God says, what he commands, and it was so. There's no ambiguity, right? God says it, he creates it, and it was so. There's a naming, and God called. There's an evaluation. It was good. And finally, you see the chronological framework. One day, or day two, the third day. Right? So there's symmetry, and there's also a pattern within uh, chapter one. Some of the major takeaways, which I'm sure you probably observed and noticed yourself, is that Genesis 1 is really clear. There is only one God. Moses is writing to a polytheistic people who believe there's multiple gods. And God has redeemed his people. He's remembered his promise to Abraham. He's redeemed them. He's called them out of slavery in Egypt. And he's going to tell them, hey, there's not multiple gods like the Egyptians believed in those surrounding cultures. There's one God. And I am that God. And I just defeated all those multiple gods through all the plagues. Okay? And so the second point is, you see, is that not only is there one God, but that one God, he is the creator of the heavens and the earth. Make no mistake about it. I created everything that you see, he says to him. And all that he created was good. In fact, it was very good. The problem that they encounter, the trouble that they encounter, is not because what God created was faulty, but because of the fall, which is what we'll come into in chapter three. And Moses is gonna explain to them 
where they came from, who they are, where they're going, what the problem is. The problem is sin and rebellion against God. And ultimately where the solution is found in faith in him. Another takeaway is that he alone is eternal and everything owns its origin and existence to him. Colossians 1 speaks of how Christ was involved. He is our creator and everything holds together because of his sovereign hand. Creation proclaims the Lord's greatness and his glory. I encourage you to just mark down Psalm verse 8. And he alone is worthy of all of our worship. And we, as his creatures, are accountable to him. That was all those things were true during Moses' day. And they're all true today. That God wanted these people who have been redeemed by him, called out of bondage and slavery, captivity in Egypt, to understand their unique relationship to him and the role that they were to play. Now, undoubtedly, there are a lot of challenges to reading this, especially in light of um, our understanding of science and, the, and the, how critical people are of Genesis 1 and 2. And so there are a lot of interpretive challenges or questions that I'm sure you, you made note of. Some of those that I, I made note of were simply these. In verse one, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, how are we to understand Genesis in light of today's various philosophies and modern science? Verse 2, does formless and void imply a sign of judgment? And is there a gap of time between verses 1 and 2? If you did looked at the little study Bible in the back of your booklet, you'll know what I'm referring to. Some people, when they see formless and void, they believe this is a sign of judgment and read into this that this is where Satan fell. And you see chaos as a result of Satan's fall. Verse 5, should we interpret a day as a literal 24-hour period? Or did the Lord create the world with the appearance of age? Verse 11, how are we to interpret kind? What varieties of species are to be included with each kind? Verse 26, to whom is the us referring to? Can we find support for the doctrine of the Trinity within this passage? Here's a question you probably ask. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? You stop to consider that? What does that mean? And then finally, how are we to understand God's command to be fruitful and multiply? Is it God's intention that everyone have children? Furthermore, how are we to understand God's command to subdue the earth and have dominion over it? And what responsibility do we have in stewarding God's creation today? Those are just some of the questions that you may have had while reading this. And I encourage you, take note of those. Choose one, choose two. Try to answer that, investigate it, so that when you come together, you can spend time answering them. I'm going to tackle one for you real quickly, and that is one that I think is one of the more important ones, is simply this. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? How many of y'all reading this text ask that question? All right? Hopefully all of you did. I mean, what does it mean that we were created in the image of God? Well, you'll recognize that throughout the years, scholars, theologians, there's some, there's some debate on that. It's not straightforward, okay? Usually the definitions um, center around these ideas. <clears throat> They'll talk about how we are creating the image of God in the sense that we have a personality, We're creating the image of God in the sense that 
in this context, man is told that they are to take dominion of the earth. And they'll look culturally at when kings reigned in the earth, they would put their image out in the field and across the towns and everywhere as a symbol of, hey, this is owned or this, is, this land is ruled by this particular king. And so there's scholars who will tell you, hey, the, the whole image of God is tied up in the fact that just as man was uh, or, or just as kings would put their image out there to stake their territory, so too are we made the image of God in the sense that we reflect him and we're to take dominion of the earth. We're to be his image bearers everywhere we go as we take dominion. Some people talk about how we're made in the image of God and that we're made for relationship, that God is a personal God. Emphasis is on language that God spoke and that when he spoke, everything came into existence. That he communicates with us. Or morality, that we're different from the animals, that we're set apart from them. We have a moral compass. We have a conscience. Or creativity, that the image of God has to center around creativity. We see he's incredibly creative, obviously. And then we too are creative in our music and um, our language and our ideas, what we build. So there's ambiguity around what does it mean to be made in the image of God. There's lots of ideas out there. And my answer to all of those is, yes. Yes. It's probably a little bit of all those. And nothing that we can say with certainty, but this much I think we can say. We are, were created to know God and reflect his glory. We're created to know God and reflect his glory. Put simply, we are his image bearers in everything we do. You were created to have relationship with the one true God. Distinct from all other creation, he sets you apart to reflect his glory, to know him, to trust his word, to live in relationship with him. You are his image bearer in everything that you do. And this has enormous implications, doesn't it? If you stop and consider it, The image of God is not just some theoretical idea, a theological idea, but it has enormous implications. Consider the the sanctity of life. If we're made in the image of God, if we're set apart to reflect his his glory, what does that say about the sanctity of life? Issues of abortion and euthanasia. Topics that we hear about in the news all the time. What about about our care for the poor, the disabled, the less fortunate? What about the practice of medicine? Our understanding and application of genetics. Sexuality and reproduction. The issues of race and prejudice. And the basis of where we find dignity and self-worth. The image of God, gang, this is enough right here, just this list. And ask your group these questions. Hey, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? And then what's the so what of that? And then what's the practical outworking in your life as a physician, as a a father, as a friend? What does that mean? How do you look at other people that are different than you? How do you care for the poor, 
and the less fortunate, who are all made in the image of God. In chapter 2, I title it, we see the creation of man. We see that God rests on the seventh day. That's how it begins. We see the emphasis on the man and the woman in marriage. I showed you this last week. In Genesis chapter 1, it focuses on the six days of creation. In chapter 2, it focuses on the sixth day of creation. The word for God in chapter 1 is always Elohim. The word for God in chapter 2 is Yahweh. Elohim speaks of his majesty, his sovereignty, his transcendence. But chapter 2, it pictures God as intimately acquainted with our ways. You see God like a potter forming and fashioning us, man and woman, in a garden. And it speaks of Yahweh, which is his covenant or personal name. Chapter 1 focuses on the universe. Chapter 2, the creation of man. Chapter 1 climaxes with man. Chapter 2 climaxes with marriage. There's a design to what Moses was trying to communicate. Some of the interpretive challenges or questions you might ask yourself is, why does there appear to be two creation accounts? Why is Genesis 1 there and then Genesis 2 there and designed the way it is? Verse 15, Adam was to work the garden even before the fall. So how is this to inform our theology of work today? Work did not come about as a result of the fall but was there before the fall. Verse 18, in what sense was it not good that man should be alone? And how is it that a woman is a helper or a fit for him? Verse 19, what is the significance of man's role in naming the animals? And what does this say of his dominion over the earth? And verse 24, what does it mean to leave and cleave and become one flesh? And to what extent is this to inform our definition of marriage today. Now, in, you can't speak about Genesis 1 and 2, right, and not recognize that there's a lot of controversy over 1 and 2, and that good Christian men reading the same text who believe that the Bible is the very word of God differ on how to interpret Genesis 1 and 2. Hopefully your leaders passed on to you an article written by Ray Bolin, who's a member at Watermark. I don't know if he's in here or not. Um, but he's a member of Watermark, he wrote, he explains there's three Christian views that um, people tend to hold. These are good men who love the Lord, who believe that the Bible is God's word. The first view is what um, is termed as the recent or literal creation view. This is just simply that, hey, when it says that God created the heavens and the earth, he did it in a day, it was a 24-hour period, it's an historical document, right? Take it as it is, is the plain reading of the text. I'm very I'm simplifying these views for the sake of time. But then there's this cre- the progressive creation view, which see, says that, hey, you know that literary framework that I just spoke of? Well, it is trying to show you that there is completion, that there is perfection. But it's not trying to show you that there's an is exact 24 hours. And so they read that it's more of a literary framework. It's the general idea that's being conveyed. And they read gaps of time into each of those days. And then there's what's known as theistic evolution. That Genesis account is strictly theological. That we can't count on it as historically accurate. And they read that that God used theology. I mean, used uh, evolution, rather, in creating the heavens and the earth. And to this, all these things, I would just say this. 
I go, I know that there are a lot of people who are all over the map on this. Many of you in this room. And I would just say, in your groups, be humble. Be humble with one another. And I'll tell you, I'll be the first to acknowledge, there is, as you'll see, there's more ambiguity in the text than most Christians recognize. There are a lot of questions we have in 2013 that Moses simply wasn't trying to answer. Right? And so there's some ambiguity there. He was writing again to a people leaving Egypt, a nomadic people, right? Living in a polytheistic culture. And there's debate here on day and how we're to understand it. Okay? But there's also some ambiguity uh, in the claims of scientists that most scientists fail to recognize. When you push them and and and, and, uh, press them, the whole idea of um, irreducible complexity uh, complexity and the intelligent design um, ideas and their arguments have really exposed that the more we've learned about the cell over the years, the more we're able to see and to to view it. The complexity, the language, the the, the code of the cell is not simpler in nature. It's just grown more complex. And statistically, the chances of that just happening at random seems really far-fetched. There seems to be an intelligent designer. The Big Bang, how did that come about? Well, there's theories about that. Okay, well, where did the matter come about? Where did the energy start? What started that? We believe that God is eternal. He's the uncaused cause. And you keep pushing them. Well, tell me what happened before that. Tell me what happened before that. And it's not science. It's speculation. It's guesses at best. So let me say this. We must keep the authorial intent of Moses always in mind. And not allow either our theological or scientific bias to rob us from the plain reading and understanding of the text. And I also want to just make this point. Evolution, in the strict sense of a uh, secular humanistic idea, that we are here because of time plus chance plus matter. Okay? That idea is not surprising to me. Because as you'll note when you read Genesis, as evidenced by as early as the fall, the flood, the Tower of Babel, man has always attempted to live apart from God. Always. And evolution is simply man's best attempt to explain God away and thereby live without accountability to him. Where do I fall out on all this? What do I believe? Speaking plainly, I don't believe there's any reason why, or I don't think you can, personally for me, I don't think there's any way you can read a theistic evolutionary view in a Genesis 1 or 2. I just simply don't think you can do it. I don't think you need to do it. And I think that would be the furthest thing from Moses' understanding and intent of the text. And I think progressive creation is just simply um, scholars' way of trying to build in time into the text. I don't think there's any reason to sacrifice a plain, normative 
reading of Genesis 1 and 2. I just don't think you have to. I think God can create the world with the appearance of age. I think God is able to speak the earth into existence. And I know that there are many who uh, disagree with me on that, but I, but I just don't think you need to sacrifice the plain normative reading of the text. But that's for you all to debate in your groups. My final thought is this. I like this quote. This is an exceedingly strange development, unexpected by all but the theologians. They have always accepted the word of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But for the scientist who has lived by his faith and the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. Evolution getting in my mind, time plus chance plus matter is just man's way of trying to explain the existence of the universe apart from God. So that then they don't have to live in accountability to the God who created them and designed them to live in relationship with. Science, in that strictest sense, is a more of a philosophy, a theory, a philosophy that people have held to. Okay? It is not a proven fact by any stretch of the imagination. So I want to challenge you guys. Dig into this subject. Learn more. Educate yourselves. We had the creation conversation where we brought up some of the leading scholars of our day. And you can find it on our website and listen to them. There's books, websites, messages, all made available to you. And I encourage you to check them out, some that we pointed out to you last week. Um, just final notes. Remember, on your name tag, that's your room assignment or where you're going to go for your small group discussion. If this is your first time here this week and you don't have uh, a group of guys that you know you're supposed to be meeting with, if you would, just come down here at the center of the stage. We'll put you in a group. We'll be in an open group this week. and We'll get you placed in a group next week. And if you don't have a, a workbook or a chart, please go downstairs by the work Welcome Center and grab one. Hey, gang, it is tough to talk about Genesis 1 and 2 in 20 minutes, right? There's a lot of questions I know you have, okay? But I don't want you to be bullied by science when I just don't think there's real science that's there, okay? But I also want you to recognize that there are good Christian men who hold various views on this, who disagree on the age of the earth and how to read Genesis 1 and 2. And that's okay, and we need to remain humble, okay? But we shouldn't read our science back into Genesis 1 and 2 and, and rob the meaning of the text in which Moses would never have intended. You need to know this. There is one God, and he's the creator of the universe. And he is sovereign, and he spoke this earth into existence. And he created you to have a relationship with him. But you, like me, and just like Adam and Eve, have always attempted to live apart from him. So he sent his son to die on that cross and three days later rise again. That's the bigger miracle game, right? That God became man to bear our sins on the cross and three days later rose again. That's the miracle. And that's where life is found, gang. You were created to have a relationship with the one true God through his son, Jesus.
And that's where we are recreated, just as God intended. But he's not done with us. We've got to learn from each other. We've got to grow. He's given us his word. He's given us his people, right? And he's given us his spirit. We have all we need for life and godliness. So I'm going to pray for you and then encourage you to go jump in your groups. Well, Father in heaven, I thank you for a chance just to be with my friends this morning, to learn from each other. I thank you for the clarity of Genesis 1 and 2, frankly. I thank you, Father, that it speaks boldly of your existence, of your sovereign design, of, um, of your creativity and of your goodness. I thank you, Father, that you designed a, a, um, a paradise for us to live in. And I regret every day, Lord, just our rebellion against you. And because of that, Lord, the mess we now live in. But we rejoice, Lord, that you haven't given up on us. But just as you sent an ark to rescue Noah, Lord, you have sent us your Savior, your Son, Jesus, to rescue us from the flood of judgment. I pray, Lord, that we get busy following, listening, and heeding your words and fall more in love with you today. In Christ's name, amen. Y'all have a good morning.